chapter, it's chapter 17. This is one of the most, well, I maybe shouldn't put it that way, because not everybody would agree with it. But for me, it's one of, the, it's one of my favorite chapters. Now, I don't know, I don't know how far we're going to get with some of this today, because I will, and I have to really fight this, and Fred, it's your responsibility to keep me from doing it. Um, I have to fight going down lots of bunny trails here on history and some of the historical background of some of this. (laughs) But it's, uh, particularly as we get a little into the chapter when he goes to Athens, um, it's, um, it's a very important section because I think we get a little bit of an insight in how did Paul address secular, non-Christian, non-Jewish, Greco-Roman people. And that was what uh, he did there at the end of uh, chapter 17. But before we do that, we, we do need to continue to chart his movement and why he gets down to the, the city of Athens. If you are following, as Woody is trying to religiously do, the map here, and if you're using uh, seven, page seven or whatever, we're going to see that Paul is going to move from Macedonia up in the north down into the central part of Greece. And you might remember, um, uh, as we had been studying a little bit earlier, he had crossed into Europe, uh, in Troas, and then it was up in Philippi, which is such another important city and all of that. Now he's moved to Thessalonica. And uh, again, if you're, if you're looking at the map there, uh, Thessalonica is an important city still in Macedonia in the north. It was right on a major east-west highway the Ignatian way it was called. But anyway, it's a very important uh, city. Uh, Its location was critical. Um, It was one of those kind of like Chicago, L.A. type cities in Macedonia. Fairly large population for that time, 20,000, which would have been large, 20,000, 30,000. And it was an important political city, an important commercial city. And so he's there in verse uh, 1, it tells us, there was a synagogue of the Jews. So that tells us that there's a fairly significant Jewish population. Now, not enormous, but fairly significant. And Paul went in, and this was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them. Okay, if, if Luke is telling us he was there for three Sabbath days, so he was there at least how long? Three weeks. Three weeks. So he's spending a fair amount of time there, unlike some of the other cities, where he either met with lots of resistance, was kicked out, or he chose not to stay. He's staying there a fairly important period of time. And it says, Luke tells us, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now notice these words, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. What's another way of talking about the Christ? What's another word? Because Christ is actually translating a Hebrew word. Messiah. So remember, he's talking to Jews in the synagogue, so he's going to focus on their most important concern. Has Messiah come? Who is Messiah? And so Paul says, reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. Now, he didn't have 1 Corinthians 15. He didn't have the gospel accounts yet. This is still early. So where is he reasoning? What scriptures? Well, probably Isaiah 53, which is a major, major text, which explains that Messiah will suffer. He will die for his people. He will die that they might become righteous. There are some of the words that are in there. And to rise from the dead. So that must mean that the resurrection is taught in the Old Testament. Yes, it is. Excuse me, who, who wrote Isaiah? Isaiah. Okay. Yeah, Isaiah was a prophet. So, I mean, I just, this is one of those little verse summaries. I just, I wish Luke would say, go down a bunny trail. Now, here's all the proofs he used. And here was his outline. And here are all the texts he used. But see, Luke assumes that you know that. Luke assumes that his readers will know this or know how to find out. 
So it's just, it's quite majestic, really. It's so powerful in just a few phrases. And it, it just gives us a little bit of a sense that this was his strategy. As he goes into a city, goes to the synagogue, and he wants to prove something to them. What is it? Messiah has come, he's died on a cross, and he's been resurrected. All according to the scriptures. He isn't making this up. It's not a bunch of myths or legends. He isn't saying this is what we want to believe, can't prove it, not sure it happened, but this is what we want. This is what modern liberalism teaches today in the typical mainline denominational church. We can't prove this. This is what the early church wanted to believe. Whether it's true or not isn't important. That's not what Paul's preaching here. So he's making all the connections between Jesus and all of the Old Testament text. And then Luke says, and this quoting from Paul, saying this, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Say that another way. That this is the Messiah. Now, for, remember, he is speaking in a Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica, so they know the language, they know all the texts, and he's just saying, the Christ has come. The Messiah has come. So that's an extraordinary message. I mean, for you and me today, it's kind of, yeah, I've learned about that since Sunday school. But in, in, this is revolutionary message. These people don't live in Jerusalem. These people live in Thessalonica, Macedonian major city. They're Jews of the diaspora. There aren't cell phones around that keep them up to date. Here's a man explaining to this, to them that there is a man who fulfilled all of their prophecies of the Old Testament. And so there's only one reasonable conclusion to make, that this Jesus is the Messiah, which is just an extraordinary message to be proclaimed. Have you done a study on Isaiah? Have I done what? With this group, have you done a study on Isaiah? No. That'd be like a three-year study with him. <laughs> it's 66 books uh, 66 chapters I should there's, say it's a so oh my goodness yeah it's uh, you know the first 35 chapters are the judgments of day of the Lord judgments on all the Gentile nations and other things about Messiah and then it's 36 through 39 is on Hezekiah's rule and then 40 through 66 are all of the great future prophecies about the coming of the Messiah I don't, we don't really want to do that. That's, that is a hard book. I know, well, I'll think about it. But you went through Exodus pretty well. So. Yes, yes, that was good. But Isaiah, I've taught Isaiah, and it's hard. I mean, it's hard. I mean, I love it, but it's, you're in so many, particularly those early chapters. Uh, I mean, you're, all the judgments and all of these. The history's amazing. Yes, it is. <laughs> Let's, let's move on. <clears throat> Verse 4. Now, clearly articulated, clearly explained, the main idea of his sermon is now Jesus is the Christ. What was the response? Verse 4. And some of them, now who's the them? Jews in the synagogue of Thessalonica were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Now, again, I just, if it's important to you, I just think there are a couple of participles there that are really important. Verse 3, explaining, proving. Verse 4, persuaded, joined. So you see how, how Paul lays this out and the response. They were persuaded. And they joined their movement as did a great many. So you have the Jews in the synagogue at Thessalonica. But Luke goes on, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. Now, that is Luke's way of referring to Greek people, Greco-Roman people who had come into the synagogue as God, sometimes they're called God-fearers. And so they also are converting to Christianity. And then he adds something else and not a few of the leading women. This is a favorite theme of Luke that you see throughout his gospel and you see throughout his book of Acts. 
He's focusing on how women are also responding to the gospel. And that's just, uh, it's something that, again, for you and me, that's no big deal to, to read something like that. But in the first century, to, to keep focusing on how women are responding is showing the nature of the gospel is a leveling gospel. Galatians 3.28, in Christ there's neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. That's, all that's saying to us, and that's the importance of that, is that the message of the gospel levels everything. Everybody comes to Christ in exactly the same way. And uh, uh, even women are responding to the gospel. And leading women, uh, that's how the ESV translates it. Um, presumably these are influential wives, influential people in the community, like before Christmas when we took our break back in, in chapter 16, Lydia of Philippi, a very wealthy, important woman of that city. Yeah. Would the Greeks and the women have been in the synagogue? Or would they have been just... That's a great question. Probably probably the Greek. <coughs> that he's putting it de devout Greeks. Yeah. We are assuming, as they're called in other parts of Acts, God-fearers. These are Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. Oh, okay. So they're hearing this in the, in the synagogue at Thessalonica, and they're responding to So that he calls them devout Greeks probably is, is a way of telling us these are Gentiles who were converted to Judaism. And were the women have been allowed in the, in the synagogue at that point? That's a great question. They're very unusual for them to be able to be there. So that's why, uh, why uh, what is the connection to these leading women? Are they the wives of some of these leading Gentiles and leading Jews? Uh, that's the conclusion that often is reached. That's a great question. It's just we don't have enough information. It would be highly unusual to have significant numbers of women in the synagogue. It really it would be unusual. And if they are, they're very segregated. Can I ask you a question here? When the God-fearing Greeks, they were not Jews. That's correct. They were, they were not Jews. Greeks. They're so Greek. they had no religion themselves, did they, other than philosophy? And, and well, no. I mean, uh, the... Uh, the Greco-Roman world, because the, the Greeks and the Romans, although they're historically different, they basically um, they basically worship the same system. It's a many many gods, yeah, okay. and all the myth, you know, Greek mythology, the mythological tales about Zeus and Apollo and Aphrodite, they tell us the stories of their gods and goddesses, and they built temples. Uh, we're, when we get to Athens, we're going to see that. There, there were literally dozens of temples in Athens, dozens of them, each to a different god. So, you know, John, the, 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 before they, this group of people, these God-fearers, these converted to Judaism, they would have been polytheists, worshiping many gods, the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. Well... When you say before they were converted to... Before they came... Correct. Were they, were they coming into the Jewish synagogue just to hear Paul? Or were they attending... No, they, are, they would have been involved in the synagogue okay. before Paul showed up. That's what, I mean, that, we, we've seen that before. We saw that in Caesarea when Cornelius, you know, is there, Cornelius was a God-fearer. Uh, we saw that with the Ethiopian eunuch. He's way down in Ethiopia. He travels to Jerusalem. He's a worshiper of the real God, but he's a Gentile. So we, we, we can't, I mean, they didn't take detailed uh, surveys, so we have no idea how many, but there was a significant minority of Greco-Roman people who had converted to Judaism. I mean, that's, just, that's an important historical fact. And so they're in these synagogues, and they're hearing the message about Christ, the Messiah, and so they're converting. So it's kind of funny if you put it: they're they're polytheists who convert to Judaism, a monotheistic faith, and then convert to Christianity. <laughs> I mean, that's really what's happening. They're on this journey, and it's it's a remarkable uh, uh, number of people. I mean, again, I can't give you numbers. I, there are no reliable figures that I'm aware of 
but you're talking about a minority, but a significant minority, because often, you saw it with Cornelius, you saw it with the Ethiopian eunuch, they're very influential people. Okay? Thank you. Jim, yeah. um, it seems like sometimes we elevate these people uh, beyond what we could ever be or hope to be, but I don't, I don't think that's the case, in that this is an example of how scripture shared with others, isn't it? Oh, of course. And well, the truth, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the truth of these scriptures can create a dialogue where others come to know Jesus Christ. That's right. That's our right. Savior. We don't have to be a Paul. We don't have to be a We don't have to be any of that. Just who we are. And God has equipped us sufficiently as he leads us in his will, through his power, and maybe sharing this book with other people. Sure. Though we don't know it from cover to cover. I think a lot of us just give up and say, well, I don't know that much about it, really. I don't know. If you know about Jesus and nobody's done for you, tell the story. It, yeah, maybe that's it. Tell the story. These God fears, where did they worship? In the temple? The, the, the Jews? The no, in the synagogue. In the, uh, yeah, in the synagogue. They would worship in the synagogue. That's right. And, it, uh, you know, I, yeah, this, this is, uh, remember something uh, about the Jews of the diaspora. If I, do you understand that sentence? Jews of the diaspora. They, they've been, for all the different reasons that are part of history, they forced to spread out. They're all over the Mediterranean world. Uh, it was very difficult for them to regularly go back to Jerusalem and worship as a Jew while the temple was still there. So they, they would remain, for practical reasons and so on, and their main center to go was the, the synagogue. But the synagogue, there are no sacrifices going on there. There are no priests there. The synagogue is a teaching center. That's where you would, they would read the word of God, meaning the Old Testament, and they would have, uh, um, they, they would get the title elders, but they would then teach from the, the Old Testament, teach from the word of God. Uh, and they systematically read the word of God in the synagogue. So if you convert to Judaism at this time in the first century, where would you go? That's where you would go to the synagogue. Now, if you were a person of some means, you could and probably did travel to Jerusalem. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch was doing. But he had the money. He was a, an important person in the court. But the typical, common, ordinary prayer would have been very difficult for them when you're outside of the Eastern to be able to go to Jerusalem to worship. That's one of the real challenges for the Jews of the diaspora because once Rome destroys the temple in A.D. 70, it even becomes more problematic. What does it mean to be a Jew? Because everything's gone. The temple's gone, the high priesthood is gone, uh, and so it, that becomes a real uh, challenge, and that, that's why Judaism begins to really change, but that's beyond our study. Great questions. Man, you must have been saving up all this energy during the, <laughs> during the break here. However, the response was not all positive. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. Now, again, Luke does what most of the New Testament writers, the phrase the Jews does not necessarily mean all, it's probably referring to the leaders. Probably referring to those who had something to lose with this message of Jesus being the Semite. So when it says they're jealous, what are they jealous of? If, if what Paul is saying is true, we're going to lose influence. We're going to lose power. We're, we're going to lose significance. So they've got to nip this thing in the bud. And so taking some wicked men of the rabble, that's, that's how ESV translates it, the market people, they're called in other paraphrases, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. We do not know who Jason is. The assumption is he was a leader in the synagogue who had converted to Christianity. That is the assumption. 
because he doesn't tell us who he is. He doesn't give us a biography of Jason. But they are the crowd, the rabble, these market people who are kind of like the, the Bowery boys of, that probably doesn't mean anything to you, uh, but the kind of the rabble of an urban area, the Jewish leaders stir them up. Probably even pay them a little bit of money to stir up the crowds against Paul. And so whom do they attack? One of the leaders. And when they could not find them, meaning Paul, Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. Now, the city authorities, the Greek word there is polyarches, these are the people who are the political leaders of Thessalonica. They're not Jews. These are the political leaders. Could it be magistrates? Yes, magistrates. So these are the political leaders. So they're dragging it before them. And this is kind of like... Um, this is where the um, judicial function in the city, this is where it would be carried out. So charges are going to be made, evidence is going to be presented, then they're going to make a decision what to do. And so the next couple of verses detail for us the charges. What are the charges they're bringing against them? Shouting, charge number one. This is a great, it's a great charge, isn't it? These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, I mean, you, you, you understand the irony of that, in a sense, because, by the way, that becomes the title of a couple of really famous books. They turned the world upside down. Mm-hmm. One very famous book, which is a history of the first 300 years of the church. They turned the world upside down. Where'd they get that? From this verse in verse 6. Because already... Now, you remember the, the, the first missionary journey is in the early 50s. Already, the reputation of Christianity is it's upsetting everything. The, 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 the stories that are being circulated is they're influencing everything. They're influencing how people worship. They're influencing how people do business. They're, they're influencing all of the, the uh, like we saw in, in Philippi, all of, of the cults and, and, and worship things of this polytheistic world filled with gods. And like you had that young girl who was employed to, to uh, cast out the, I mean, if you remember all that stuff, they're just everywhere they go, they're upsetting everything. And they're here in our city. Charge number one. Charge number two. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Charge number two. And that's the far more serious one. They are acting against Caesar's decrees. What decrees? They're disturbing the peace. And they're saying there's another king. Who is it? King Jesus. What? King Jesus. The king of kings and lord of... So, in other words, because he goes on saying that there's another king, Jesus. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, 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 they're filing before the magistrates in Thessalonica two very appropriate and very significant charges. They're disturbing the peace, they're turning the world upside down, and they're now here in our city. And number two, they're guilty of sedition. They're proclaiming another king. And if they're proclaiming another king, what's the inference of corollary? Caesar's not the king anymore, which is not anything any Roman wants to talk about. So, I mean, these are very serious charges. And remember, it comes out of it has its origin in the Jewish leaders who are jealous of what Paul and Silas are doing, jealous of the message, jealous of the response, and so they're going to stir up enough of people to get this to the before the eyes and the ears of the political power of Thessalonica. Jesus was silent, spoke not a word when 
he was challenged. They say you are king. Yep. King of the Jews. He said no. So assign that to Jesus as Galatians. Say it again. It's it's the way it's false. Is it false? Because Jesus did say to Pilate in his second trial, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not denying that I'm king, but my kingdom is not of this world. So, is I mean, is it correct to say that there's another king, Jesus? Is that theologically and biblically correct? Yes, that is theologically and biblically correct. But that it is King Jesus, his kingdom is of another world. I mean, he's not a major threat to Caesar in A.D. 51 or 52 in terms of his political power. But ultimately, he is a threat. And because he'll undo all of this, as you know, at his second coming. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed and they heard these things. And then when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The Greek word for security there, hikanos, is like they paid bail. And you all know what bail is. So that's really, that's really what's going on here. They, pay, they made bail and made the promise that they're not going to break any Roman law and they let them go. So you have this, this rather typical response in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, Paul is in a synagogue. It's this Norway. You have a significant number of people responding and believing. But then you also have a significant, very typical response of a lot of pushback and a, life, a lot of life-threatening political charges that really put the disciples, Paul, Silas, etc., in jeopardy. Their lives are at stake. I mean, if they can prove that they've committed sedition, they could be executed for that. So, I mean, it's just, now they're going to move on. They're not going to stay in Thessalonica. And we'll talk about that in just a minute, why that's important. But So, I mean, that's all. This is all Luke does with Thessalonica. And, and you, you, you remember that it said he was there for three weeks. So Luke is only telling us a tiny, tiny bit of what went on there. But most importantly, what was the response? Thank you. Um... He said there's another king, it's Jesus. Wasn't Caesar, they knew Jesus, they knew they put him to death, correct? Well, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure uh, at that time the Caesar when Jesus was executed was Tiberius. I'm not sure Tiberius had a lot of detail about what was going on, other than probably from Pilate, his, his governor, what, what had occurred. But because if Jesus is now a threat of being king, it's almost an acknowledgement that he rose from the dead and that he still is. Well, that's what Paul is declaring. Mm-hmm. Whether you know they're accepting that or not personally, they're just saying, this guy's saying something very threatening to the Roman Empire, which is a significant issue for Rome. This isn't so much, and I understand what you're saying, that's really a great question, great comment, this isn't so much whether accepting the truthfulness of resurrection or that. That isn't even the issue as far as these magistrates are concerned. This guy's talking about another king. That's a threat to Rome. And the one thing the Thessalonian leaders, the, the magistrates, did not want was Roman legion coming in to settle things. So we don't want that. So they're going to do everything they can. And so you know they, they convinced Jason and these others, pay your bail and get out of here. And that's how they dealt with it. Now, Paul, as you're gonna, this is really important. Paul is upset that he can't spend much time with us, more time in Thessalonica. So as we'll get a little bit later into chapter, he's gonna send Timothy up there, he's gonna send Silas up there, he's gonna write two letters to them. What are those two letters? First and second Thessalonians. <laughs> so I'm, I'm saying all that because Thessalonica is important to Paul. And so even though he's now, in a sense, forced to leave it, he doesn't forget it because it's so strategic in its location and its influence. So you read more about Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, uh, in the New Testament, and it's because of its important location. So, but now we've got to leave it. All right?
Any questions? Every, other questions? Oh, good one. <clears throat> now, again, if you're interested in following, he's now going to go om, almost due west to Berea. And when they arrived, he went in to the Jewish synagogue. That's his typical norm. That means, again, there's a fairly good number of Jewish people in Berea, enough that there could be a synagogue. I love how Luke writes this. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. ESV translates eugenes, that's the Greek word, as noble. That has something to do about their demeanor, how they're responding. That's what he means by it. It's not they're better people, better born. of a high, That's not what it means. It means how they're responding. They received the word with all eagerness. And then I love this. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What these things are referring to what? All of the prophecies about Jesus. Hey, today in the synagogue, Paul was mentioning Isaiah 53. Now, he didn't read from it, so they go home, pull out their scroll, and read Isaiah 53. <gasps> That's right. And the next day, Paul quotes from Psalm 16. He didn't read it. He didn't have it in front of him. They go home. They pull out the scroll. They read. <gasps> That's right. That's why sometimes Sunday school classes are called Berean classes. Did you ever hear that? Okay, some of you are shaking your head, the rest of you are saying, and the rest of you are just playing living statues. You don't even know what I'm talking about. But, yeah, I mean, it's just because they're checking to see if what this guy is saying is really true. If so you go to the scriptures. I personally want you guys to all be Bereans. I mean, I really do. Sometimes we do. I know you do. And that's why your good <laughs> questions come up. Like no, that's great. You are. You are in the process, just like me, of becoming Bereans. Because we're, when you are checking things out, what he said, is that true? You go to Scripture. You know, that's really true. Wow. So, I mean, it's just, that's why, again, it's, that's just the way it is. When, when it's, been, it's frustrating that we don't learn more about the brains. Because he's only going to be a couple more verses, and they're going to move on. But you see this, just this remarkable group of people. Well, they examine the Scriptures daily to see if these things that Paul's been teaching are true. Many of them therefore believed. Now notice again, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Luke's done it again. He's showing us that influential women are also responding to the gospel. Then, verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. Now, if you look at the map, I mean, you, you could probably already did that. If you look at the map, you see where Thessalonica is. Berea is just a little bit to the west along the Ignatian Way. So it would not be difficult for them to make that trip. But they hear about this, so they carry on, stir up the crowd there. So verse 14, and the brothers immediately sent Paul off his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there which tells us that presumably they're really after Paul. Because Silas and Timothy stayed. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after a command for Silas and Timothy to come as soon as possible, they departed. So that, this explains to us, meaning this verse I just read, why Paul and how Paul gets to Athens. Now you have to look at the map. Just if you're interested in that, you have to look at your map. From Berea to Athens is 195 miles. So this is no small trip. And so, I mean, you're going from Macedonia down into the heart of Greece. Okay? Can you point to it in there on your map? Can you point to where I might find that? Okay, you're, you're on the one on page 7. Right. Berea is up here in the north of Macedonia. Right. Athens is down here. Okay, got it. Thank you. 
As the crow flies, it's 180, 95 mile. It looks to me like they sent him to the coast and the arrows here go through the water. So they must have taken a ship down there uh, to Athens. Apparently. There's some discussion about that, but that's right. Mm -hmm. Question. Mm -hmm. And uh, they they refer to the brothers. Right. The the brothers in Christ, fellow Christians in the church. Yes. That's right. Jason? Uh, well, not necessarily. It's 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 usually if, if it's unless it's identified in a different way. It's usually just believers in the church, now, the church at Thessal, or the, in case this case the church at Berea. It's just a general reference to leaders in the church. Okay. Now, um, I wish. I mean, I have a lot of slides on this and stuff that. Uh, I'd love to to go over with you, but I want to talk a little bit about Athens, okay? You see where it is. Um, Athens, intellectually, Athens was probably the intellectual center of the Greco-Roman world. If I say it that way, do you understand what I mean by intellectual center? I mean, Rome's the political center. Uh, Alexandria, Egypt is kind of commercial uh, 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 intellectual center. Get a great library and all that stuff. But Athens, Athens was the intellectual philosophical center of the Greco-Roman world. Who came from Athens philosophic, in terms of philosophy? Socrates. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Those three philosophers, they're in the 400s into the 300 BC. That's when they lived. You know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, plus, I mean, a host of others, plus other groups, and we're going to read about them in this, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, again, I mean, unless you study philosophy, a lot of stuff going over your head, I don't even care about this stuff. And that's okay, but it, it's just fascinating that Paul chooses to go here. It doesn't, it doesn't say he's coerced to go there. He goes to Athens. So what he wants to do is take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the intellectual, philosophical center of the Greco-Roman world. I'm not sure I can think of any place in the world today, in 2019, that would fit something like Athens. You know, I mean, there just isn't a place quite like that in the world. In the United States, even, um, maybe, maybe you would say Harvard. You know what I mean? Maybe. But a lot of people would dispute that. But, you know, you try to think of an intellectual center where all of the major ideas of, and worldview things come from that. I don't, I can't think of a place like that. Certainly not in the world. I mean, you could, some people would argue maybe London, maybe Paris, but they're so, so it's just it's so unique. The other thing is that Athens, Athens had been a city that was destroyed during the Persian Empire, in the Persian Wars. When Persia invaded, you know those stories about Thermopylae and Marathon, you know those battles, you've probably heard about those. Some of those are the, the great, uh, great parts of the, of the history. Well, when the Persians attacked and, and for a brief time conquered, they burned Athens to the ground. So Athens was rebuilt by a great general and, and political leader named Pericles. And so everything that Paul would have seen here about A.D. 51 or so, this is the new Athens that had been, been rebuilt after the Persian Wars. Now, not, not, not by new, I mean it's 300 years old, but still, I mean, it's the new Athens, not the old Athens, the the Athens that was a part of, of much of the intellectualists. That's all been destroyed, burned by the Persians. This is rebuilt. And what's the most famous building in Athens at this time? The Parthenon. I hear a couple of people, the Parthenon. The Supreme Court building of the United States in Washington, D.C. is modeled after the Parthenon. If you've ever seen the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C., right next to the United States Capitol, if you've ever been there, that, that's modeled after Parthenon. It's, exa- it's almost a replica. 
It was an incredible building on the top of the Acropolis. No matter where you were, you could see it. There were, temp- there were dozens and dozens of temples in Athens. Uh, Bethany Hughes, a, a historian uh, uh, from England of this period, she's written a wonderful book on the Socrates, the, the Athens of Socrates. And she did describe, she tries to, that's sort of been in the 400s, but what, what would Socrates, as he walks to and, and walks around Athens, what's he seeing? It's just a great little book on that. And that's what, this is what Paul would have seen. And so Paul is looking at this, and verse 1, what does it say? I'm not verse 1, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. It's very hard to translate that. Reviled, despised within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I have on some of my slides some of the artist's renditions based on the archaeological digs. We know what we know how Athens was laid out, and what what it would have been like. Oh, men, I'm telling you, you would walk one block, you could see at least twelve statues <coughs> to different gods, goddesses. And I'm not talking about the temples. Plus, there are temples built. They're just it was a it was a city, intellectual, brilliant, philosophical, etc. But it was a city absolutely steeped in idolatry. They had temples and statues to all their gods, including one other, to the unknown god. They, we have found an altar to the unknown god. It's in archaeology. It's in a, in a museum in Rome. So, I mean, this is what Paul is looking at. And he said, you know, he has come to know Christ. He's come to understand that there's one true God. And he's in a city known for its intellectual brilliance. And what does he see? Idolatry everywhere. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Again, here, Lucas does this. the third time he's done this. In this synagogue, in Athens, there are not only Jews, but other Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. And in the marketplace, this is a Greek word I think you should know. I'm going to write it down. It'll be on the quiz next week. The word for marketplace is agora. And every, every Roman city Every Greco-Roman city had an agora, a huge marketplace. And it was a marketplace like you think of little shops, little shops all over the place. Wide open area, a little shop. So that's where he is. And in the marketplace, every day with those who, who happened to be there. So here's Paul. Where is he? He's standing there waiting for Timothy and Silas to come from Berea. But while he's waiting, he's just absolutely reviled at the city filled with idols. But what's he doing? Oh, Lord, this is horrible. Please take me away. No. He's ministering to the Jews and the people in the synagogues in the marketplace. What do you think he's doing in the marketplace? Handing out tracts? Well, Maybe. But I doubt it because the printing press. He's talking about Christ. He's talking about Jesus. He's telling people about the Lord. And then verse 18, this is amazing. Two of the major philosophical schools of first century Athens, hearing. And we're even named or even explained to us the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, the Epicureans, did you ever, did you ever hear that word before? Epicureans, some of you maybe did, Stoics. They, the Epicureans and Stoics would be on the opposite ends of the philosophic school of the first century. The Epicureans are followers of a, of a Greek philosopher named um, Epicurus, who lived about the time of of Socrates, pretty indifferent to religious stuff, pretty much secular. 
Their pursuit was the pursuit of the good life, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of happiness, and not necessarily just sexual pleasure. They were very this world, this era oriented people, somewhat secular, not particularly concerned about what happens when you die, not very religious. They're interested in a lot of just the philosophical questions. The Stoics, they're followers of a guy named Zeno. They are just, just the opposite. The good life is a highly disciplined, highly structured life, very, um, very accepting of whatever happens, um, tough it out. And sometimes we use that word in our English conversation. Well, that's a very stoic approach. That's just a very, I accept it, very fatalistic. And so you have these pursuing pleasure and the good life, don't particularly care about much. And the Stoics, very fatalistic, very much believing in the gods, but you know, find your place, endure, hang in there. So you kind of have the two opposites. And they're in the Gora, the marketplace, talking to Paul. What do you think Paul's talking about? The weather? The ball scores at the Olympian Games north of Athens? I'm being funny there. I don't think so. <laughs> he's, he's telling them that there is a God. Not your gods, but a God who's the creator. And he sent his son. And he, he's talking about those kinds of things. So what's their response to this? I mean, this isn't just once. This, this is a, a several days because it, it's the number of days till Timothy and Silas come. And so um, he's in the marketplace day after day after day. I'm sure they're asking him all kinds of philosophical questions. Paul is brilliant. He was trained in one of the top schools of the Greco-Roman world, the University of Tarsus. He's no dummy. He can quote from their philosophers. And so this is their response. Look at verse 18 in the middle of the verse. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? The Greek word there is sperma logos. Someone who's planting lots of intellectual seeds. He's saying a lot of interesting things. But that's why to translate it babbler is not necessarily a good translation. Because if you and I talk about a babbler, it's kind of like incoherent, stupid, silly stuff. They're saying, when they say sperma logos, this guy's saying a lot of things. Seeds that I'm interested in exploring. But it's pretty silly stuff. Others were saying he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, that's what he was talking about in the Agora, Jesus and the resurrection. These other guys are responding, but he's answering their questions. His, his language is spermologos. He's saying lots of seeds, lots of things I want to... But it's kind of silly stuff. But they're trying to figure him out. Trying to figure him out. Trying to figure him out. Yep. You know, they're just kind of yep. investigating. Exactly. More or less. Exactly. They are too interested in hearing more from him. So what do they do? This is really important. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. And the Areopagus is literally transliterating into English. It's the Hill of Mars. It's Mars Hill. This is a hill right at the base of the Acropolis. The Acropolis is up here. This is where the Parthenon is, the Erechtheum, all those buildings. Mars Hill is right at the base of this. Elevated there, the steps, the steps up to there are still there today. The steps that Paul would have walked are still there today. I mean, they're etched into the stone. That's why they're still there today. So this is where, and they would, they would kind of, and we know this because it's still there, they would kind of, uh, they would be, there's an open area like this, and there are stones all around it, and Paul would have stood right here. 
So all of this is the area, it's, it's really, it's just a flat rock. That's really what it is. It's a flat rock at the base of the Parthenon's up here, the Acropolis up here. Mars Hill's right here, at the base of it. It's elevated, you walk up to it. So it's, it's, they're all stones, or they're sitting here. You have the Curians and the Stoics, and here's Paul, right in the center. And this was the typical way in which the Areopagus met. So these are all of the philosophers, all of the thinkers of Athens are now gathered on Mars Hill. And this is what they say to him. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. This is incredible. The top thinkers of the Greco-Roman world are asking Paul, tell us more about what you're teaching. We, we want to hear more. Now, all of the Athenians, this is verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. A little bit like you watch your favorite television program, your television news source. What's the newest... <laughs> The newest philosophical fad, the, the newest little tidbit of gossip out of Washington that I want to hear about. Or what's the newest summary of Trump's tweet? Or the newest summary, I mean, just whatever the political thing, just, the new stuff, we want to hear about it. We don't want to miss anything. So maybe there's just a little tidbit of information and insight that you have to offer us. Because we're interested in all the new intellectual fads of the day. And so Paul's there. Now, we'll never get this done today because I want to spend a great deal of time on this. But Paul's message, lecture, if you will, I mean, I doubt it was a sermon, but Paul's lecture is mixed with quotations from their philosophers. Why would he do that? Credibility. If he is going to talk to them about Jesus, he has to meet them on their own turf by showing them he understands their worldview. And he'll quote from two of their philosophers as he builds the case, you need to understand who God is and you need to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And he's not going to quote from the Bible. He's not going to quote from Jewish rabbis. He's not going to quote from Isaiah 53. Why not? Because at this time, that would be irrelevant to them. Probably none of them have ever heard of Jewish scriptures, for the most part. And so it's just, this is a master, masterful address of how do I talk to people who are very smart, very highly trained, who don't give a hoot about the Bible, who don't give a hoot about Christian theology. And so it's, it's, it's a remarkable, and I, I can't believe that Paul would not have thought about this for a long time. What am I going to say? How am I going to lay out my argument? How am I going to structure this? And so, as again, we'll never get this all done, but I, I want you... I want you to, 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 to look at the, the very first thing he starts to do. He tries to meet them on their own level of understanding of the transcendent world, of, of the world beyond the physical. And so, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, it would, again, it would be something like this. The philosophers are on Mars, so this flat rock right at the base of the, of the Parthenon. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Whoa! That's paying him a compliment. You're very religious people. Well, that's duh. I mean, because I said earlier, there are just idols everywhere. And then he gets, it's really cool how he does this. <clears throat> For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship... 
I also found an altar with this description to an unknown God. We have found an altar to an unknown God. As I said, it's in a museum in Rome. I mean, it's just this, so this we, we know this, that this was something that's been documented and we have archaeological evidence. This was something that the Greeks did, uh, uh, the Romans too, the Greco-Roman world did, to an unknown God. Um, <laughs> you can look at this very cynically. Just in case we missed somebody, we're, we're putting them there. Just in case there isn't somebody that we don't know about or some god that we haven't named outside of Zeus and, and Aphrodite and Apollos and Mars and all those other guys. There's one other, so Paul says, okay, however you understand that, let me camp on that a little bit. What you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. That is so cool. He's taking an accepted part of their tradition and building a bridge there. You worship the unknown God. I mean, you don't know anything about him. You don't know anything about his attributes. I'm here to tell you who he is. I'm going to proclaim him to you. Isn't that neat? Yes. Well, how shrewd. In Luke 16, Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to be shrewd. The children of darkness are often more shrewd than the children of light, Jesus said. That's an important message for you and me today. There's nothing wrong with being shrewd. It's affirmed by Jesus. It's a part of our strategy. Paul's being shrewd here. You worship an unknown God. You know anything about him. You're just covering your bases. I'm here to tell you about him. Sit down. Well, they are already sitting down, but I'll tell you about it. I mean, that is so neat how he's just thought through that. Obviously, the Spirit of God is at work in him. But Paul, a brilliant man, what you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. Now, look at the first thing he does. What does he want them to know about this, quote, unknown God of theirs? That to him is the one true and only living God. Look at verse 24. For God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the creator. He created everything. And he's the Lord of heaven and earth. Singular, not plural, not many. And now look what he says. He does not live in temples made by men. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Let me stop there. Now you, you start picking those little phrases apart. You see, that's exactly how they looked at their gods. That's exactly how they, our gods live in temples. You know, they, I mean, Paul's in the center, just temples everywhere, idols everywhere. And that's how they're looking at all this. Paul says, uh, the creator of all things, who's Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples. He doesn't live in buildings. And he's not served. You serve him. You, you offer food to him. You offer drink. That's not God. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And once you, let's, let's, I guess I'd better quit. What do they do with their, <laughs> do they do with their idols? Do they, they pray to them? Do yes. they worship them? Do yes. They Offered them sacrifices offer? to them, gave them food. Yes, all of that. Yeah. Put part of this image. Yes, yes, yeah. So he's saying that God doesn't need that. God doesn't need that. That's not the true God. And did you notice what he says, though? I mean, let's put it in Christian language. Paul's focusing on the common grace of God. 
to everyone, to everyone, he gives life, breath, everything. You owe him everything. Now, if you want to know how he builds on this, come back next week. Then at the end of that session, I'll give you your thought paper assignment. I don't know why I do that, but it just makes me feel good to do that. So anyway, I hope, I hope you're with me on this. Uh, this, is, this is a remarkable passage of Scripture. As we watch Paul noodle his way through, speaking to probably some of the most brilliant people of the first century. He's not mentioning his words. He's being very categorical. But he's also building bridges to them, making connections. Ooh, I need to listen to what this guy's saying. And it's really, it's really neat. I, I just, I, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the New Testament. And uh, maybe you already gathered that. Let's pray. We've got to go here. I've kept you too long. Father, we're grateful for uh, the good um, uh, and, and, and blessed time over the holidays that we had with family and friends as we worshipped the Lord Jesus, remembered the Incarnation, and even in our own lives, just thank you for Jesus, most of all, the greatest gift. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul describes it as the indescribable gift from the Father. And that's really what Christmas is all about. And it's just a, a joyous time of the year, and I'm thankful for each and every blessing we had. Now we're getting back into our schedule and our classes resume. I just thank you for the enormous privilege that you give to me to teach and to share with these men the things of the Word of God. Thank you for their willingness to come and their willingness to be a part of this class. Thank you for Joel arranging this uh, very lovely facility for us to have our class in. It's comfortable, it's quiet, and uh, even a little pad there for me to write some things on. So I'm grateful for that too. Uh, help us as we continue to study this, this majestic, this majestic address of Paul the intellectual center of the first century, and just how incredible he is as he builds those bridges under your inspiration to make the case that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. He deserves our worship and all that he's accomplished for us. It's important they put their faith in him. And as we'll see at the end of the chapter, some very prominent people respond. So I'm thankful for the privilege of studying this together. Give us a good rest of this week. Dismiss us with your blessing. And as we go our separate ways, Lord, help us to represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. amen. See you next week.